Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Michael Bode, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and host of today's podcast. I'm joined by my fellow Tax Banter trainers, Leanne Hayes and Michael Mesner. Welcome to Tax Yak. We're going to be talking today about the allocation of professional firm profits in the ATO Practical Compliance Guideline. But uh, we have to take a step back first. Leanne, what's, what's happening here? Well, thanks, Michael, and hello, everyone. Um, what we have is the long-awaited draft practical compliance guidelines from the tax office about the allocation of professional firm profits. It all stems back to their original sort of set of guidelines that they issued back with effect for the 2015 year. And they published these guidance. Um, bit of a misunderstanding out there. People did think they were a safe harbour. It's I kind of described them as sort of the tax office giving us a heads up on how they were going to run a, a compliance project with respect to the allocation of professional firm profits. And what they did back in 2015 is give us a set of three criteria. And if we could come within one of these three sets of criteria, we were considered low risk. So that means there was a low risk that the tax office would come and knock on our door. So there were three benchmarks and we only needed to satisfy one of them. So the first one was that we were getting appropriately remunerated for what we did. So that looked at whether we got enough, as much income as one of the employees in our firm in the top quartile of our employees. So as long as we were taking home a salary commensurate with one of those employees, we were considered low risk. The second of the benchmarks was with respect to the entitlement of income from the practice that we put in our own tax return. And as long as 50% or more of our entitlement to the firm profits ended up, or our entitlement to the firm profits ended up in our tax return, we were also considered to be low risk. And the third benchmark was that we had an effective tax rate of 30% or more. Now that 30% um, tax rate was relevant, not just to the, the income from the practice that ended up in our tax return directly, it was also our associated entities. We could look at the tax rate that they were paying on that particular income as well. So I described it at the time as the tax office writing a big long list, putting a line, and as long as you were below the list, you're at low risk of them knocking on your door. However, what they found is people were up to some colourful arrangements, perhaps trying to get within the guidelines. So in 2017, they suspended the guidance. So I guess it might be time to perhaps look at some of the uh, mischiefs that people were up to to try and get within the guidance. Indeed. Michael. <laughs> so Michael, Mr. Michael Mesner, what are, what are some of the uh, structures that you've seen that uh, perhaps the ATO was, was concerned about? Oh, there's a couple out there. And um, interestingly enough, I have to highlight that a couple of those guidelines were also misunderstood in the past by very experienced um, practitioners in the field. And I think it, it just took on a life of its own where a lot of practitioners said, well, this seems all right with, within the guideline here. And, and we lost kind of the, 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 the overarching idea that this is just the interpretation of part 4A here. Is there a scheme to derive a tax benefit? And that got lost. Too many people just relied on those guidelines, as, as Lee already said, as a safe harbour. I was under the impression actually myself that it was a safe harbour. So here's the ATO taking a step back. 
Before I talk about the actual mischief um, that, that I've observed personally and I've heard about out there, I just want to highlight that the ATO's definition of soon is effectively three years and three months because we were told that we would get new guidelines soon when they were uh, suspended in 2017. <laughs> well, soon means three years and three months. Well, I think this is the result of a very heavy pressure applied uh, during the middle of last year. Where is Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Mm. Anyhow, um, look, a couple of items we've seen in, or I've observed in the past is where um, some people just came along and said, well, hang on, um, we are paying ourselves a salary higher than the highest paid employee. Just that my highest paid employee happens to sit in the Philippines or in Vietnam and only grosses about $35,000 a year. Or we would have seen that the highest paid employee actually didn't have similar similar duties in their job and for that reason a lower salary range other things we saw was just a 50 50 split of profit um, under the second rule that was available um, along the lines of um, that working and saying okay i'm taking 50 percent of the profit that's 80 grand a year the other 80 grand goes to my spouse now for example and on the 30 percent effective tax rate we would have seen maybe a um, IPP, a principal practitioner, distributing a dollar to them. They're already in a, in a tax bracket above 30%. They pay 30% or whatever over percentage over that um, on that $1. Um, and then the rest goes to bucket company tax at 30%. Happy days, you meet that criteria. And in the next financial year, you just bleed out those retained earnings, fully franked to a family member that probably has a tax-free threshold available or lower marginal rate, um, deferring income and the like. So there was plenty room for creativity. And um, I, I was surprised at the time that the guidelines were withdrawn. Having said that, the surprise on mine was because I always said, well, isn't it obvious that if you play, use these rules as, as, a, as a carte blanche, that, that you are in part for a land, it doesn't pass the smell test. But apparently the ATO has seen or observed a couple of attempts just to blatantly abuse this guidance. And for that reason, the guidelines were suspended. Yes. Um, look, it's interesting to me that they only required one to be satisfied. I mean, there are three classic arguments that you'd be making if you were to be saying Part 4A shouldn't apply to me, that I'm paid a normal amount, that I've received most of the income that has been, um, that I'm ultimately entitled to from this business structure. And I've got a th an effective rate that is relatively high. Each one of those arguments would be quite legitimate arguments to make. So it does make sense that they only required one. But you know, like you're highlighting, Michael, I guess there's there's a lot of ways that that can be that can be abused. Keeping in mind, though, that of course this only applies to the, out, the areas outside PSI. So the PSI rules can also apply on top of this. If you're in that land, if this does involve personal services income. Then that is is this this is this, these rules are not talking to you, right? So this is only yeah. um, th those other uh, circumstances where you've proven that you've shown yourself to be operating a business and you're earning your income from a business structure, a la IT two six three nine, where effectively that was talking about uh, doctors there having just as many employee um, uh, income earners as they've got uh, owner operators there. So, yes, I think it is interesting to sort of see what these practical guidelines or who these practical guidelines actually apply to. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And, um, and again, and the, so just again, I think that's where too many practitioners over the years have just said, oh, well, there's guidance here. And I find it interesting, even though the guidelines do not apply, 
I actually believe they still do apply in a way because again, it's just the ATO's interpretation of part 4A. Yes, exactly. So even though the ATO says, well, those guidelines don't apply, that's fine ATO. But very often we probably come to the conclusion that, okay, even though we are a PSB at this point in time, this is the smell test and we still want to make sure we are within those guidelines <laughs> at the very least. So don't throw this away just because you're PSB, mm, because mm. this is more important than anything else, probably just that you need to meet some other criteria on top. Yes, absolutely. This is just the tax office telling us what they think is a high risk situation. This is the tax office telling us how they're going to run an audit program. So this is what attracts their attention. Conversely, what's not here doesn't necessarily attract their attention. So surely the principle should equally apply regardless of whether we're a professional practitioner or professional practice to whether we're selling widgets or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting that they're almost you know applying a different threshold for those that are in professional services and a, a presumption, if you like, that Part 4A is more likely to apply to them because of the fact that it is more closely aligned with the personal services if it's, it requires your skill, et cetera, then um, you're more likely to be able to argue part 4A is applying. Um, perhaps you could say that they're um, taking the easiest bait, the lowest hanging fruit here with being the professional services in terms of part 4A. Mm. Are you safer as a, as a, as a builder, a, a lower, lower or, a, or a, a, a profession that doesn't have the same ethical requirements? Um, are you actually Potentially. Safer? I'm, I'm mm. thinking about um, Mr. Arjunan's case, tongue-in-cheek, where his chain of argument in the tribunal was, well, I heard that I could do this at the pub, and he wasn't a professional, so for that reason, um, arguably, yeah, you feel safer yeah. at the very least. Yeah. So, so these, these are these are safe harbours, if you like, or we're calling them safe harbours, even though they're not a safe, it was never a safe harbour. No, we're not. Yes, we're definitely not. <laughs> we're not. Uh, but but the fact is, is so it's, it's something that's of an advantage to professional providers, but only because they're coming from a position of, uh, of disadvantage in the first place, that they're more likely to have Part 4A apply to them. I don't know. Is that a reasonable comment? I'd agree. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So what's happening? We're moving away from hard and fast rules to a framework. Is that a fair comment? It's a certainly more complicated framework, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, look, this is, this is designed to sort of, as I said, the, the tax office giving us the heads up about what attracts their attention. So it's interesting. I guess we probably should talk about what the guidance actually does. And up front, before you even get to this risk framework that we're, we've sort of alluded to, there's sort of two gateways. And when I read these gateways, my mind goes back to that old service entity stuff from the mid-2000s about being able to commercially justify why you're doing why you're doing. And that's your gateway number one here. If you can't justify why you have set yourself up the way you have, you, you can't even rely on any of these sort of factors or, or I'm not going to use the word safe harbours. You can't rely on any of this risk framework to identify yourself as being low risk because if it's not commercial to start off with, it's never going to be low risk. And then, of course, we've got the second gateway about the high-risk factors. And I think that's the tax office just keeping a couple of cards up their sleeve to be able to play in the future. Let's issue a taxpayer alert saying this is now attracting our attention, which boots you out of being able to rely on that framework. So we've got some additional requirements at the outset. Both of those two gateways could potentially kick you out even before you're considering any of these prescriptive tests. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So should we run through the requirements here that we have uh, for the application? We've got PCG 221D2 is what we're talking about here. And it runs through quite a few pages. 
Um, and of course, there's a much more complicated uh, arrangement. Leanne has just been talking about the two primary gateways that, that are shoved in up front that we need to, to satisfy. Um, but there are also the, the preconditions for the, for the guide to apply in the first place. And we've, we've just discussed there that it's professional services uh, to, that are being provided and that the IPP have a legal or beneficial interest in the firm. So we're limiting it to that professional services. We discussed this in brief just before about the difference potentially between a bricky we were mentioning and other professions. So some of the indicators that we have for what is a professional service is the level of accreditation and ethical guidelines that exist, a high level of education or training, moral obligations that are above the normal individual and a high standard of behaviour with um, with public with the public and with colleagues that is required by the by that uh, profession. So why wouldn't this apply to a bricky, Michael? Well, that, that's exactly the good question. I'm I'm very surprised. I think we have to take a step back here. Who is really a professional? If we look at this, I can I can only help but think it's it's the old professions. We're talking about doctors, lawyers, accountants dentists and engineers, that's it. Because if you think about it, which um, uh, professions really require accreditation and have that strong set of ethical guidelines? There's lots of professions that require accreditation, but really to me, this reads as um, uh, special knowledge and skills widely recognized as a body of learning derived from research, education and training. That, that is the very definition of the old professions. And what sets the old professions apart from wide collar jobs, so to speak, which can be very professional now, broadly called a profession as well, is really this a learned broad body of education, which we learn every day at TechSpender, that we only know so little of all of that out there. So really, to me, this means self-regulation, self-licensing, and we're talking about the five old professions I just outlined earlier. So. Does that kick out everyone else? Does it kick out the IT consultant, for example? Does it kick out the guy coding the widgets and selling them, for example? They come down to how ethical they are, <laughs> perhaps. Well, <laughs> there, there, there could be different interpretations on that, but uh, look, let, let's, let's assume the best of, of yeah. every builder and, and service provider out there. Yeah. Well, I guess there'd be, there'd be a lot of people that are on the periphery of that, so... Um... It'd be interesting to determine what, what the extent of operations is, but I think you're right, Michael. They're just, they're just targeting those specific professions. And, and I just want to highlight that I, I, I think this, the way it is drafted under this paragraph 29, it's likely to narrow definition. Because if we really then reduce ourselves to the five old professions, well, then we've got an issue because many of them are smaller, are probably PSBs, do we really have a lot of large partnerships or, or, or large gatherings of, of, of medicos and, 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 and engineers, et cetera? Engineers probably more common, but accountants, there's a lot of sole practitioners or smaller firms out there where we are in the PSB space again. And then under paragraph 25, we'd be out again. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but you'd be looking at whether, whether we can argue that we've got a business structure. And I think if you've got a business structure and the income is coming from the business structure, that's when you'd argue it's not personal services income now. It's not personal exertion income. It's income from a, a business structure. And you'd go to that ruling that Michael mentioned earlier. Hmm. And that leads into the, the additional criteria, preconditions to apply, apply the guideline is, is that the income is not PSI. So there has to be 
uh, if, it's, if it is PSI income in the first place, if it's not from the operation of a business uh, structure. Let's remember PSI here means sorry, PSI here means mainly a reward for your skills and services provided. Um, which obviously means yes. that a lot of professionals, because they don't have anything as an accountant, you don't have anything other than a calculator and a pen and a piece of paper, probably in a computer, mm. you are paid for your professional services. So most of this would be PSI, wouldn't it? Unless <laughs> there's a business structure. Well, that's that's exactly. the thing. I mean, yeah, exactly. They're, yeah, they're, they're really this is only those that have actually been able to successfully argue that position in the first place. And of course, it doesn't involve a, a sole trader. It has to involve a partnership or a trust or a company. Specifically, what they're saying, it has to involve a legally effective structure. That's the way that the firm operates. One thing that I mentioned earlier um, offline as well is um, the fourth bullet point on the paragraph twenty-five says the IPP is an equity holder. That is an, uh, an IPP holds full rights to participate in the voting management and income of the firm. That might always be a given anyway, either. Um, what if you have a discretionary trust as an entity, you don't have equity in that. So by default, are we out of this guideline? Yeah, well, the, all the voting rights might've been passed onto somebody else. Um, you might not hold them. So you don't have the opportunity to assess yourself as low risk. Potentially, yes. yes. But again, I have to come back to all of this. This would still be my Bible. This would still be my golden source where I start my process to mm. assess whether I'm low risk. I just have to take more precautions. So don't stop reading and listening right here. Keep going. Just be extra careful about it to make sure everything is prim and proper. Yes, exactly. Yep. And then and then the final two preconditions are the actual gateways one and gateways two that Leanne was just talking about. Yeah, so, I got excited. I did them early. <laughs> no, well, I mean that's the key point that everybody's everybody's aware of is is gateway one, um, and then that's the way that these things are operating. Um, is there any other yeah. what, this commercial rationale? What intrigues me is that they they list out the indicators that an arrangement lacks a sound commercial rationale, and they and they give uh, indicators of, of where it, there might be a genuine basis um, for the arrangement. And one of them being that the remuneration is, 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 is truly comparable, is, is a commercial, has a, a true commercial comparable. Um, so if, if you're paying a reasonable amount, which is one of the tests themselves, as we'll see later, and has yeah. been obviously the test earlier, is, is one of the factors that are considered here and probably one of the only prescriptive things that you can possibly refer to. So um, when you're trying to pass a gateway test here, which is quite vague, I guess, um, then that could really bring you unstuck. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was overall though, gateway one talking about commercial, commercial rationale. Um, I just can't get over the fact that it clearly says genuine commercial basis for an agreement is required. And in the past, I think too many accountants out there were just too lax about this and said, well, it's all about asset protection. But Lee made an interesting comment to me earlier before we started recording. Well, hang on, asset protection. Do we really get it in this case? We are professional. We're still liable, most likely, to a large yes. degree. Absolutely. Our reputation is in tatters if we forget the scissors in the patient's stomach. Mm. That's <laughs> right. And that goes to why we're, you know, the, the, the professionals are such easy targets for Part 4A. Um, because in the ATO's eyes, that they're more likely to have no argument, if you like, 
uh, for, for, for a commercial rationale that would be the counter argument for any general Parfaray attack. Let me just ask you both then, what would be a commercial rationale to structure yourself in the way that you do then? What do we look out for? And I know it's broad. We always talk about asset protection um, and, and the ATO says as paragraph 36, well, they look for the arrangements that actually do not provide um, improved asset protection. What is a genuine reason then to actually have a bit more of a complex structure than just shares in a company, which you all yeah. own or partially own based on your on your billing percentage or whatever else it is? Yeah, you've, you've got to get right down to things like the, the real origin of Philip's case and things like that, that where there was litigation in the past when everything was done in your name. So you're trying to put things over here in a service entity quite separate to the practice to just try and protect as best you can. But it has to be a genuine risk. So there was, in that case, previous litigation that we then restructured to try and avoid. Yes. Well, I mean, the traditional counter arguments to Part 4A is asset protection, estate planning or... Uh, some form of efficiency or improved uh, commercial outcomes. Uh, so that's quite be... hard to argue in this case. If you yeah, think about it, a exactly. professional, what, where, where, where's the estate planning aspect here? And again, where, where is the um, asset protection here we just mentioned? Well, it, yeah, hard, I think, I think it's, it's hard. Yeah, you really ultimately need to push the, push the asset protection um, question and be thinking thinking about it. But, you know, like... Like Leanne's saying, you know, there are sound commercial reasons for being able to park out some of your liabilities. It's not just the primary liabilities you're considering. It's all of the secondary ones with your employees, et cetera. And, well, you know, yeah, assets. yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's it's broad thinking and asset protection is, is where you're at, though. You're right, Michael. It is yeah. well, it's rather narrow in terms of trying to try argue. Yeah, and you get to a point where I think the smaller group, the smaller um, practices, that's a lot harder to argue. As you get bigger and you've got more employees, the more risk, um, you've got more of a business structure, that's when these things come a little bit more into play. But at the very small end, um, and medical practitioners as well, I think it's very, very hard if you're your, your one-man show um, to argue that you're getting asset protection from some of these um I mean, you could almost cynically view this first little test, right? They say this is the first gateway, and the first gateway is is that you need to pass Path 4A. <laughs> is that not what they're saying here? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think this is the missing puzzle in the jigsaw for the old guidance that was withdrawn, simply because we could just pass one of those three old tests. And this is the important bit here. Gateway one is just putting in writing the smell test where we previously said, oh, well, we stuck to one of the rules, we should be fine. But actually we're not because it's blatantly part for A. Yes. There seems yeah, to be two, 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 as, two aspects. Nailed. Sorry, Leanne, you carry on. I was just saying that's nailed it. That's exactly what this is. Um, the, the gateway one is just that smell test. Step back before you look at any criteria mm. and assess yourself as low risk. Can you actually justify it? And then, as I said, the, the gateway two before, to me, that's just the commissioner keeping a few tricks up his sleeve for the future. Mm. Of course, there's two sort of aspects to this uh, the, this gateway one. One is the sound commercial rationale, um, which which is um, the commercial nature of the uh, arrangement supports that. But there's also documenting everything that permeates through all here, making sure that these arrangements are actually appropriately set up and documented um, seems to be uh, another aspect to all of this. And I, I think that's another reason why smaller firms, um, you know, that don't necessarily have actual transfers of, of funds, for example. No real money is being transferred in a lot of these transactions. Uh, that can leave you a little bit more open as well. So um, just just having your paperwork and everything in place is, is obviously 
important for Gateway One. Agreed. And, and paragraph 39, I think, is a very, very powerful, and I'll take the liberty to just read that out. When considered in its entirety, any change in text performance, any change, absent any other non-text-related practical changes, not on paper, practical changes, is a strong indicator of a lack of commercial rationale for the arrangement. I'm not surprised. This is it. This is exactly it. It doesn't matter what you put down on paper. Is there any tangible difference afterwards regarding any other factors other than text performance? And we have to probably put our hand up. In the past, we would have said, well, not really. We're just writing it down so we can give our advice and it should be all right. So somebody that goes into an arrangement pre-COVID-19, for example, and then suddenly um, has a change in tax performance because they've had a massive drop in profits. Should they be scared? Potentially. Hmm. I think so. Yes. Mind you, again, part five is just an integrity provision. Does it pass the smell test? If you say, well, because of COVID, it actually does, you're fine. Hmm. Yes, exactly. This is a vague test. So what's the, we got the second gateway, the high risk features. We, uh, what are the elements there, Leanne? What are you, what are you seeing in that gateway too? Um, I find, yeah, obviously this is just the tax office setting out, um, as I said before, sort of the things that they will, you might be able to commercially justify your, your position. You look at the actual risk factors, you might determine your low risk, but there might otherwise be high risk features that warrant you not having access to the sort of matrix that we're about to go through. So um, the one that stands out to me is just a future taxpayer alert. So we don't have to worry about changing this in the future. We'll just issue a taxpayer alert and that will whip you straight out of being able to rely on anything in here. The other thing is just sort of manipulating differences, permanent differences between accounting and tax. Uh, financing arrangements relating to non-arm's length transactions. So again, um, one of the examples they provided was uh, having a related um, entity borrowing to acquire your interest to come into the partnership or into the practice and getting, I guess, an interest deductibility there when on the other side of it, um, we were just using the money to pay off our, our home loan. So just kind of switching from private to um, um, income producing interest. So just features like that which I find interesting rather than just going after that particular aspect. They're just putting you out of having any access to any of these kind of, yes. um, um, yeah. So it's almost <laughs> yeah. like they've grabbed a big list right from last time of all of the people that are being naughty. And um, if, they, if they exhibit any activities that are like those people that are doing these things, then you're going to be pushed completely out. Which is surprising though, because the A2 is mentioning again, Everett assignments. And I thought in the year 2021, who still does Everett assignments out there? Many groups are not aware what they even are. So clearly some activity, and I think it was maybe a cup, a handful of people only, but some people was clearly abusing those rules. And that's again, what this addresses. This is what we've seen in the past. Don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're in dangerous territory and you need to know exactly what you're doing when you're talking about an Everett assignment. I mean, basically what's what's been threatened here to me is, is that a, a transaction here might involve a transfer of, a, of, a, of an interest which might have a, a ramifications in terms of capital gains, et cetera. Uh, now, they're saying here that um, they're not going to be happy with any arrangements that are materially different to an Everett, Everett assignment, uh, which is the, the your straight run-of-the-mill proper assignment of the partnership interest by an equity holder. 
Um, so when we're, when we're dealing with the assignments to people that are non-equity holders, they've got a problem with it. Seems, which makes sense. That's right. And that also goes with gateway one. What is your commercial rationale for the assignment of the interest? Goes right back to that. Can't argue asset protection necessarily. I think the next exclusion is interesting. The, the mere existence of multiple classes of shares and units held by non-equity holders. Now, there are a lot of people that are going to be in this boat. And what's interesting to me is, is how obvious this is going to be. So it's, it's going to be clear as day what the circumstances are in terms of ownership. So this one's going to trip up a lot of people, I would have thought. I agree with you. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that the guidelines don't apply as such. You've just got to be a bit more careful. And I, I'm, I'm not trivialising this comment. I, I fully agree with you, Michael. But then I'd ask, okay, why do you have those different classes of shares? And if you've got a, a commercial, um, uh, a genuine commercial basis for that, then I don't think the ATO has an issue with it. And that's why they're even saying, reach out to us in this case. Yeah. If you've got a good reason yeah. for it, pathway doesn't apply. But this makes this, you know, on the face of it, this PCG very narrow application because, you know, this this will potentially kick you out of gateway two. So you can't rely on these, um, these risk levels. And... Um, so you're really going to be back out on your own. And there's going to be quite a lot of people, I think, that are not going to be able to rely on this. So you come forward to the tax office. So back to your point, Michael. Okay. Yep, all we've got is, is keeping things reasonable. And, and then again, you know, when we go through our actual criteria here and the risk scores that you get, they're other, they are the same categories as we had before. So you keep yourself reasonable. <laughs> the old position was just try to stick within the guidelines if you can. Um, it's still going to be the case, I guess even though you might be kicked out by something as prescriptive as this, you've got multiple classes of units or shares on issue. Absolutely right. And um, I think what a lot of uh, accounting firms will now try to do out there is just to go through the risk, risk assessment factors and work through the matrix to see whether their aggregate score is below 10. They want to get back to that old approach that we've seen in the past, tick the box and we will be fine. Well, it's a lot harder to assess now. And, and what, we can, what we find here is that, again, you can almost play your outcome and, and try to derive a, a bit of a beneficial outcome. But again, hang on, that's against the whole spirit of these guidelines. That's against the whole spirit of pathway. So almost do what's reasonable. The final line. Yeah, I do find it interesting. Yes, I, was say, I do find it interesting you get to paragraph 70 before you even see what the risk factors are. So you've got a lot of discussion before you even look at that matrix to work out what your risk score is. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, there was one other item there was in, in, involving arrangements covered by a tax alert. So if you fall within a tax alert, then theoretically this is not going to cover you either. Yeah. One interesting discussion... One interesting discussion we had actually before we started recording is that some of the wording in this um, uh, ruling, and, and I'm not saying I could have done it better, so don't get me wrong, but I hope it'll improve, is extremely confusing. If we look, for example, at risk assessment factor number one, the proportion of profit entitlement from the whole of firm group returned in the hands of the IPP, what does that actually mean? And initially my reaction was to say, well, hang on, if there's three of us, each has a share of a third, then the proportion of profit entitlement from the whole firm, well, if I get a third, I need to have everything in my hands, isn't it? If we split equal. That would be too logical. That would be reading the words of this and then 
uh, interpreting it naturally, <laughs> wouldn't it? That's right. But you need to read what it actually says. So no, it's, 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 it's talking about your proportion of your profit entitlement from the whole firm that was received. So um, it's in draft at the moment. We'll probably see some changes here, hopefully regarding the wording, because that would make life a lot easier, obviously. I think a lot of people are going to be confused. Those that understand the prior guidelines that we had, our... Um, that the, they would, you know, it's the, it's the same concept carried through, but it, it is very confusing. What Michael's talking mm. about there is the very first item here in our risk assessment factors, because once you've got through gateways one and two, you have to satisfy both, then you can move into the risk assessment uh, calculation. And, and this is the same three tests as we had before, but there are different levels. So we have the proportion of profit entitlement this is the so the share that your share that the you and your, your associates are entitled to what percentage of that is attributed to you what percentage of that entitlement do you declare personally in the hands of the ipp the individual professional, uh, professional practitioner so that's what we're talking about there Pro proportion of profit entitlement then you've got effective tax rate is the second one and then you've got remuneration being an equivalent remuneration according to the benchmark. They're the three, same three tests, but then we get this scoring system. So how's that working, Cleanne? Confusingly. Um, <laughs> so the idea is you go through those those tests um, as you've just gone through. So I, I, I'll, I'm with you, Michael. When I first read the proportion of profit entitlement for the whole group returned in your hands, I naturally assumed if I was a one-third partner, I'd already be sort of having a higher risk factor than, um, than perhaps in another situation. But no, it is a portion of what you're receiving, um, your entitlement. So what you put in your tax return, um, whether you get it directly or indirectly, but it's the proportion of your entitlement. Uh, the tax rate, the effective tax rate, again, it's really important to read these guidelines because it's not just the rate of tax you pay. It's not your marginal rate of tax. There's actually a formula. The formula is set out there sort of at paragraph 70, probably 78 of the um, practice statement, oh, sorry, compliance guidelines. And it gives you uh, the sort of the higher of two amounts. So it is a little bit generous. It kind of allows you to take into account that perhaps this might be your only income or it might be the top slice of income. So it allows you to sort of take into account the, the a, a slightly better calculation, um, perhaps factoring in deductions and those sorts of things as well. So, and that there is not just the tax rate that you pay, it's also you combined with your um, um, associated entities that get a, a slice of the, um, the amount as well. It's the third one that is particularly interesting because the table itself has a little sort of note under it that says um, that the third risk factor is optional. It's not really optional. Um, it's You don't have to do it if it's impractical for you to actually calculate what an appropriate remuneration would be. So given the ruling has almost a transfer pricing type feel to it, when you look at that risk assessment number, um, number three, I'm feeling it's probably going to be impractical for me to ever contemplate it. Maybe the I'm mere, just The mere fact that the note there at the bottom of the, paragraph 71, yeah, the use of the third assessment risk, third assessment factor is optional as we recognise that this is difficult to determine accurately. So they're making a double comment there that makes it extremely easy to argue that it might be impractical to apply and therefore you could say, I don't need to use that third test. 
And, and but this is quite a funny one. Sorry to jump in here because when I first read those guidelines, I saw this news, this note, and I thought, geez, it's really all too hard at this point in time. I'm just happy to leave it at two of those guidelines, yeah, two, <laughs> two of those risk assessment factors. It, it, yeah. It's quite yeah. a lot to work through. So what effectively does the HSC is making it too difficult to determine this accurately? I mean, a lot of things in life are difficult. It does seem to be that in practice, this is going to be an optional thing. I mean, the advantage of, of actually using the third item is that you, you're then measured against a total number um, that is different, right? So if, if you want to get into the green category, you need to get below a score of seven or equal to seven or below. And then if you're using all three categories, it's less than equal to 10. So you do have an extra three points up your sleeve if you use that third item. Um, so it, <laughs> Which presumably you only want to if you're above seven anyway. So you've only got two to play with. Sorry. Yes, exactly. And, and this is, and this leads to an interesting example. As I was fleshing out a couple of this, and we've been discussing this, but um, you know the fact that if exactly if you're in that position where you are already above on the first two, and you have to get a score of one or two, that third item there, in order to get a score of one or two, you've got to be at 150 percent and above. If you want only a score of one, you've got to get above 200% of your wages of the equivalent remuneration of commercial benchmark. So yeah, double it's hard payment, to imagine which, three helping which, you, isn't it? <laughs> it, it? Yeah. So it could in theory, but in practice, yeah, it's, it's extremely hard to imagine a circumstance where you'd want to go there. Um, you're adding yourself six points uh, if you're anywhere uh, below 70%. Absolutely. I just want to highlight though, um, paragraph 100, sorry, and I'm jumping ahead quite a bit. In the green zone, the ATO clearly tells us that there will be committed compliance resources if they become uh, concerned that high-risk features are present in your arrangement. So if you say, oh, it's all too hard, so too difficult, I should use the language correctly, it's too difficult, therefore I rely on two factors, Therefore, I, I go down to 100% or whatever works for me. I just ignore the third factor. Well, does it constitute a high-risk feature? And for that reason, already you're outside the guidelines again, effectively. Mm. And remember, yeah. of course, the the gateway, gateway one had the requirement in there or one of the indicators being that that was a commercial amount being paid. Yeah, and one of the things they also said that attracts their attention is the drift. So you're in the safe zone, um, the safe zone like a movie or something um you're in the green zone so you play around well i can actually pull out a little bit less or divert a little bit more and still stay in the green zone so i drift in that green zone to something that's getting a bit more close to the borderline well that's also something that's going to attract their attention so just because you're in the green zone doesn't give you the whole pass to just do whatever you want within that green zone mm -hmm. we've, we've been talking about i, I think it's interesting with the scoring, right? And, and you really need to see the table. It's difficult to do this on audio, isn't it? But uh, <laughs> uh, but, but with the proportion of profit entitlement, we had that 50% limit before. If if you're above 50% uh, that you've distributed to yourself individually as, an, as the uh, ind individual professional practitioner as compared to the total amount of income which you and your associates are um, eligible for, if you're above 50%, you've already got a score of four. Remember, you've got to beat seven, right? So that's a score of four. With the next item, which is total effective rate, if you look at the, the previous sort of, well, I loosely call safe harbor, which is not a safe harbor, the prior benchmark that we had, um, the total effective rate of 30%. 30% and above actually gets a three. 
So I think that, I mean, that's why they've got this seven figure, right? It's because if you satisfied it on the basis of those two, you would end up with seven exactly or less, or you'd end up on, on seven exactly. So you would pass the test there, but you have to pass both, right? So this is like uh, the old tests, but all of them needing to be passed with a little Pract bit of flexibility. Practical application, sorry, just the thought of mine, practical application, it's not so offhand though. If you think about it, you're effectively giving yourself 50% of the profit and then you make sure your tech cert is over 30%, your effective rate. Well, that means from uh, 1 July, 2024, you're giving yourself a distribution of $200,000 roughly and your average rate is a 30% because then they'll have to 30% plus Medicare applying from uh, $45,000 all the way to $200,000. Although Medicare does, Medicare does get taken out of the effective tax rate. Ah, oh, dang it. Yes. I was close. You're right. <laughs> yeah, I was close. <laughs> but the principle applies, Michael. I think you're exactly, if you, my point, that, that as long as you're satisfied both. So in general, a lot of people have been applying these benchmarks from the past in, in a general sense and, and hopefully not, just satisfying one but satisfying all of them right to some extent and uh, that's been our guidelines so if you do and you've continued to hopefully you would be sort of fine here right you you should be in the green category assuming you've passed gateway one and two not have any of the exceptions in gateway two the other item there is the equivalent remuneration right and that was uh, an amount of well, it was a different measure with, with, with terms of the upper quartile um, of equivalent remuneration. But now if it's 100% of the commercial benchmark, we're talking about another three points. So that takes it from seven till 10, which is your cap before you start. If you get 11 points, even if you can't take into account all three categories, that's when you push yourself into your amber category. So I, I just, just like to point out that that's the way I like to think about it is to imagine replicating these circumstances. If you did satisfy all of the prior guidelines, that's the point at which you exactly satisfy these tests. They've thought about it. I think it's, it's, it's um, you, you can see the sense in the design of it. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, it's true. And that goes back to what we said initially was the problem or what we probably saw as a reward with the old guidelines that just people said, we just pass one test pass one. and that's it. Yeah. And now you just have to pass the smell test. Again, will this change a lot in practice? Um, definitely from a compliance point of view, um, recording everything. And, and that is one of the requirements as well. Actually, I wanted to highlight that um, we assess ourselves annually against these guidelines and that we uh, document them. Um, that means obviously text planning. We need to do a lot more and document all these factors that, that we pass. Um, but yeah, do we pass the smell test on an ongoing basis? That's a big question here in this case. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. Um, you've got to pass all of the tests. There's a few different ways of doing it. And then you've got the initial tests, the gateway one and two, which are very much smell tests. So yeah, um, this this is, is protection, but how much protection? Uh, and how much protection is anybody ever going to be assured of? I think is, is, is a significant concern. So what does that mean going forward then? We have a start date for these guidelines of 1 July 21. Um, until then, we're supposed to use the old guidelines, which the ATO has removed entirely from their website, but we can still rely on them. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> we can use the as long as there's no high risk factors. 
as long as there's no high risk factors. Yeah, if it was in place before 14th of December 2017, you've got it right up until the 30th of June 2022, in which it could theoretically still protect you. And then you've got, if you were low risk under the old guidelines, you can rely on this, uh, sorry, you can rely on those old ones um, until 30 June 2023. So you're grandfathered, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, paragraph 103. Well, I think a lot of people will be relying on that. Yeah, but I don't think they, later. I mean, look, this to me doesn't change things a lot. We always just have to be reasonable, like Michael Mesner said. So mm. keep keep within the guidelines start, and keep within all of them. Yeah, just articulating their, their approach to Part 4 their smell test, we now see it in black and white. Excellent. All right, guys, thanks very much. Um, thanks for listening uh, out there to this episode of Tax Shack. I've been chatting with Leanne Hayes and Michael Mesner. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banner on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or guests. You can also get onto our Tax Yak team on email podcast at taxbanner.com.au and find our regular blog articles on taxbanner.com.au slash banter dash blog if if you're enjoying our podcast please take a moment to write rate and write a review for the show wherever you are it'll help improve the profile of the show and we'd love to hear your thoughts we look forward to joining you next time